Chapter 1. Jesus at Bethesda. After these things there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now in Jerusalem there is a pool by the sheep gate, which in Hebrew is called Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of those who were sick, blind, halt, withered, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then first, after the troubling of the water, stepped in, was made whole of whatever disease he had. And a certain man was there, who had an infirmity thirty-eight years. When Jesus saw him lying there, and knew that he had been now a long time in that case, he said unto him, Dost thou desire to be made whole? The impotent man answered him, Sir, I have no man, when the water is troubled, to put me into the pool. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said unto him, Rise, take up thy bed, and walk. And immediately the man was made whole, and took up his bed, and walked. And on that day was the Sabbath. John 5, 1-9. According to the evangelist, the scene of this miracle was Bethesda, a pool adjoining the sheep market or near the sheep gate. I suppose the cattle consumed by the inhabitants of Jerusalem would be driven through this gate and the pool was likely where the sheep intended for sale to the sacrifice offerers in the temple were washed. Sickness was so common in the days of the Saviour that the infirmities of men intruded on the place which had been allotted to cattle, and the place where sheep were washed became the spot where sick folk congregated in great multitudes longing for a cure. We don't hear that anyone complained about the intrusion or that anyone was shocked. The needs of mankind must override all considerations of appearance. The hospital must take precedence over the sheep market. Today we have another example of this same thing taking place. If the physical infirmities of Jerusalem were allowed to intrude into the sheep market, I would not apologize if the spiritual sickness of London demands that this spacious place, which previously was a pasture, should be utilized for the preaching of the gospel so the manifestation of the healing virtue of Christ Jesus has the opportunity to work among the spiritually sick. Just as the infirmed waited for a miracle by the sheep market pool, those who are spiritually sick gather here in exceedingly great multitudes. We might never have heard of Bethesda if Jesus, the Son of God, had not honored it with His presence. It was the place where we should expect to meet Him, for where should the physician be found if not in the place where the sick are gathered? Here was work for Jesus' healing hand and restoring word. It was only natural that the Son of Man who came to seek and to save that which was lost should make his way to the sick who waited by the side of the pool. Luke 19.10 Jesus Christ's visit is Bethesda's historical significance. It lifted the name of that pool above the common rank of the springs and waters of the earth. If King Jesus comes into this place, it would be the glory of this hall, and it would be famous for it in eternity. If Jesus came here to heal, the remarkable size of the congregation would cease to be a wonder. The fame of Jesus and His saving love would eclipse all else, just as the sun obscures the light of the stars. My brethren, Jesus will be here, because there are those who know Him and have power with Him who have been asking for His presence. The Lord's favored people, by persistent cries and tears, have won from Him His consent to be in our midst today. 
He walks among his people as ready to heal and as mighty to save as when he walked among men two thousand years ago. Scripture Behold, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age, is an assurance which comforts the preacher's heart. Matthew 28 20. A present Saviour, present in the power of the Holy Spirit, will make this a day to remember for many who will be made whole. The Patient In order to observe the patient, I will ask you to go with me to the pool with the five porches around which the sick are lying. Walk tenderly among the groups of lame and blind. No, don't close your eyes. It will do you good to see firsthand the sorrowful sight of what sin has done and to what sorrows our father Adam has made us heirs. Why are they all here? They're here because sometimes the waters bubble up with a healing power. Whether the waters are visibly stirred by an angel or not is not necessary for us to discuss here. It was generally believed that an angel descended and touched the water. This attracted the sick from all quarters. As soon as the movement was seen in the waters, the whole mass probably leaped into the pool. Those who could not leap themselves were pushed in by their attendants. Sadly, many were disappointed, because only one was rewarded for the leap. Whoever stepped in first was healed, but only the first. For the very slim chance of winning this cure, the sick lingered in Bethesda's arches year after year. The sick man in this passage of Scripture had most likely spent the better part of his thirty-eight years waiting at this famous pool. His only hope rested fully on the chance that he might one day be the first of the multitude to enter the pool. On the Sabbath mentioned in the text, the angel had not come to stir the waters, but something better had come. Jesus Christ, the angel's master, was there. This man was fully aware of his sickness. He did not dispute the failure of his health. He felt his sickness, and he owned it. He wasn't like some who are lost but don't know it or won't confess it. He was fully aware that he needed heavenly help, and his waiting at the pool showed it. There may be some people reading or listening to this who are equally convinced on this point. You have known for a long time that you are a sinner, and apart from grace you can never be saved. You are not an atheist and don't deny the gospel. On the contrary, you firmly believe the Bible and heartily wish that you had a saving part in Christ Jesus. Right now you feel that you are sick, you desire to be healed, and you are willing to own that the cure must come from above. That's good, but it's not good to stop there. The sick man waited by the pool, expecting some sign or wonder. He hoped that an angel would suddenly burst open the golden gates and touch the waters which stood calm and stagnant so that he could be healed. This is also the thought of many who feel their sins and desire salvation. They accept unbiblical and dangerous advice given to them by certain ministers. As they wait at the pool of Bethesda, they continue in the formal use of religious rituals and ordinances. They continue in unbelief and somehow expect some great thing to take place. These same ones expect that they should experience some strange emotions, supernatural sensation, or a remarkable experience, even as they continue in their refusal to obey the gospel. They hope to see a vision, hear a supernatural voice, or be alarmed with hallucinations of horror. Dear friends, we will not deny that a few people have been saved by the direct intervention of God's hand in a manner completely outside the ordinary ways of divine procedure. 
We would be very foolish to dispute the truth of a conversion such as that of Colonel Gardiner. The very night when he planned to commit sin, he was arrested and converted by a vision of Christ upon the cross and by hearing the voice of the Savior tenderly pleading with him. It would be pointless to dispute that such cases have occurred, do occur, and may occur again. However, I must beg unconverted people not to look for such direct intervention in their own cases. When the Lord commands you to believe in Jesus, what right do you have to demand signs and wonders instead? Jesus Himself is the greatest of all wonders. For you to wait for a remarkable experience is as futile as it was for those to linger at Bethesda waiting for the long-expected angel when He who could heal them already stood in their midst, neglected and despised by them. What a pitiful spectacle to see them gazing into the clouds when the physician who could heal them was in their presence, but they made no requests of Him and sought no mercy at His hands. When we encounter those who are waiting to see or feel some great thing, we explain that it is not the way God has commanded His servants to preach. I challenge the whole world to locate in the gospel of God where an unconverted man is told to abide in unbelief. Where is the sinner told to continue in his religious rituals so he may be saved? The gospel of our salvation is this, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Acts 16.31 When our Lord gave His commission to His disciples, He said, Go ye into all the world, and preach the gospel to every creature. Mark 16.15 And what was that gospel? Tell them to wait in their unbelief and in the use of rituals and ordinances until they see some great thing? Tell them to be diligent in prayer and read the Word of God until they feel better? Not an atom of it. The Lord said, He that believes and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believes not shall be condemned. Mark 16, 16. This was the gospel, and it's the only gospel which Jesus Christ ever commanded His ministers to preach. Those who say to wait for feelings or wonders preach another gospel. Scripture. I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, for there is not another. But there are some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of the Christ. Galatians 1, 6-7 The lifting up of Christ on the cross is the saving work of the gospel ministry, and in the cross of Jesus lies the hope of men. Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, is God's gospel. Isaiah 45.22. Wait at the pool is man's gospel, and it has destroyed thousands. This ungospel-like gospel of waiting is immensely popular. I wouldn't be surprised if nearly half of you are satisfied with it. You don't hesitate to fill the seats in our places of worship and are seldom absent when the doors are open. But there you sit, in confirmed unbelief, waiting for a mystical glimpse into heaven, but neglecting the gospel of your salvation. The great command of God, Believe and live, receives no response from you, but a deaf ear and a stony heart. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he is dead, yet shall he live. John 11.25 All the while you soothe your consciences with outward religious observances. If God had said, Sit in those seats and wait, 
I would be bold and urge you to do it with tears. But God has not said this. He said, Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him. Isaiah 55, 7. He has not said, Wait, but he has said, Seek the Lord while he may be found, call upon him while he is near. Isaiah 55, 6. He also said, Today, if ye will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. Hebrews 3, 7-8. Jesus says nothing to sinners about waiting, but very much about coming. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Matthew 11, 28. If any man thirsts, let him come unto me and drink. John 7, 37. And the Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let him that hears say, Come. And let him that is thirsty, Come. And whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. Revelation 22:17. Why is waiting so very popular? It's because it dulls the conscience like a drug. When a minister preaches with power and the hearer's heart is touched, the devil says, Wait for a more convenient time. In this way, the arch enemy pours this deadly drug into the soul. And instead of trusting Jesus on the spot and crying out for mercy, the sinner flatters himself and justifies his waiting, because he feels validated in his empty religious rituals. But these things are not a substitute for Christ crucified. When this is the case, religious busyness stands in the way of true salvation. A child should hear its parents' command, but what if the child puts hearing into the place of obeying? God forbid that I should glory in your listening to the gospel if you are only hearing. My glory is in the cross, and unless you look to the cross, it would be better for you if you had never been born. If you are one who has been waiting, I would like to mention one or two points. My dear friend, is not this waiting a very hopeless business? Out of the multitude who waited at Bethesda, only a very few were ever healed. He who stepped down first into the pool was cured, but all the rest came up from the pool just as they went in. I tremble for some of you chapel-goers and church-goers who have been waiting for years. How few of you get saved! Thousands of you die in your sins as you wait in wicked unbelief. A few are snatched like brands from the burning coals, but those who are hardened waiters wait and wait, until they die in their sins. I solemnly warn you that as pleasing to the flesh as waiting in unbelief may be, it's not something which any reasonable man would continue in for very long. You are a perfect example of its hopelessness. You've been waiting for years. You can't even remember when you first went to a place of worship. Your mother carried you there in her arms, and you've been nurtured under the shadow of the sanctuary like the swallows that build their nests under God's altars. What has your waiting in unbelief done for you? Has it made you a Christian? No, you are still without God, without Christ, and without hope. I'll present it to you another way. Why do you think that if you wait another thirty years, you will be any different than you are now? Isn't it probable that at sixty you will be as graceless as you are at thirty? Some of you have listened to the gospel preached to you with no mincing of words for years. I have been as plain with you as I know how to be, 
and I've never hesitated to declare the whole counsel of God. I've even dealt with individual cases as they have presented themselves. Short of actually mentioning people's names, I have attempted to present the gospel to the conscience of every man as in the sight of God. Remember the warnings you've heard and the feelings you've experienced when the word of God broke you down. Remember the invitations where you sat and waited. If all these have failed, what more can possibly be done in the way of hearing and waiting? Many of you have listened to many preachers whose words were earnest and tender. So if all these have had no effect on you, if waiting at the pool has done nothing for you, isn't it a waste of time to continue down that path? Isn't it time to try something better than merely waiting for the stirring of the water? Isn't it time to remember that Jesus Christ is ready to save you now, and that if you trust in Him, you will have everlasting life this very day? As we return to our text, there lies our poor friend still waiting at the water's edge. I don't blame him for waiting, because Jesus had not been there before, and it was right for him to pursue even the most slender chance of a cure. But it was sad that Jesus remained so unrecognized. He threaded his way among the blind and the lame, and looked with gentleness upon them all, but none looked up to him. In other places, as soon as Jesus made his appearance, they brought the sick in their beds and laid them at his feet. As he went along, he healed them all and scattered mercy with both hands. A blindness had come over the people of the pool. There they were, and there was Christ, who could heal them, but not a single one of them sought him. Their eyes were fixed on the water, expecting it to be troubled. They were so consumed with their own chosen way that the true way was neglected. No mercies were distributed because none were sought. Will it be the same today? The living Christ is still among us in the power of His eternal Spirit. Will you look to your own good works? Will you trust in your regular church attendance? Will you rely upon expected emotions, sensations, and fits of terror? And let Christ, who is able to save completely, see no glimmer of faith and hear no prayer of desire from any heart? If that is the way it will be, it's heartbreaking to think of it. Men with an almighty physician in their house, dying while they are amused with the hopeless quackery of their own inventing. Will Bethesda be repeated today, and Jesus Christ, the present Saviour, be neglected again? If a king gave one of his subjects a ring, and said to him, When you are in distress or disgrace, simply send me that ring, and I will do all for you that is needed. And if that man willfully refused to send it, but purchased presents and performed acts of bravery to win his monarch's favor, you would say, What a fool! Here is a simple way, but he will not allow himself to benefit from it. He wastes his energy by inventing new devices and toils his life away in following plans that only end in disappointment. Isn't this the case with all those who refuse to trust Christ? The Lord has assured them that if they trust Jesus, they shall be saved, but they chase after ten thousand imaginings and let their God, their Savior, go. Meanwhile, the sick man, so often disappointed, was growing into deep despair and becoming old. Thirty-eight years spent in illness is a long time out of a man's life. He felt that he would soon die. The brittle thread which connected him to this life was nearly snapped, and as the days and nights wearily wore on, though he waited, it became heavy work to wait. My friend, 
Is this the way it is with you? Is life wearing away at you? Are you starting to see gray hairs here and there? You have waited all this time in vain, and I warn you that you have sinfully waited. You've seen others saved. Your child is saved. Your wife is converted. But you are not. You are waiting and will continue to wait, I fear, until the words earth to earth, dust to dust, ashes to ashes rattle your coffin lid, and your soul finds itself in hell. Don't play with time any longer. Don't say there's enough time, for the wise man knows that time is never enough. Don't be like the foolish drunkard who, staggering home one night, saw a candle lit for him. Two candles, he said, because his drunkenness made him see double. I'll blow one out. As he blew it out, he found himself in the dark. Many a man sees double through the drunkenness of sin. He thinks that he has one life to sow his wild oats, and then the last part of life in which to turn to God. So, like a fool, he blows out the only candle that he has, and in the dark he will have to lie down forever. Hasten thee, traveller, thou hast but one sun, and when that sets, thou wilt never reach thy home. God help thee to make haste now. The Physician As we have already seen, on this occasion, our Lord walked forgotten and neglected through that throng of afflicted people. No one cried, Jesus, thou Son of David, have mercy on me. Luke 18.38. No struggling woman reached out to touch the hem of his garment, so she might be made whole. And behold, a woman who was diseased with an issue of blood twelve years came behind him and touched the hem of his garment, for she said within herself, If I may but touch his garment, I shall be free. Matthew 9.20-21. All of those who lingered at the pool desired to be healed, but either no one knew or no one trusted Jesus. What a strange, soul-sickening sight it must have been, because Jesus was quite able and willing to heal, and to do it all without fee or reward. Yet none sought Him. Is this same scene going to be repeated today? Jesus Christ is able to save you. There's no heart so hard that He cannot soften it, and there's no man among you so lost that Jesus can't save him. Blessed be my dear Master, no case ever defeated Him. His mighty power reaches beyond all the depths of human sin and foolishness. If there's a harlot, Christ can cleanse her. If there's a drunkard or a thief, the blood of Jesus can make him white as snow. If you have any desire towards Him, you have not gone beyond the reach of His pierced hand. If you are not saved, it's certainly not because of a lack of power in the Saviour. In addition to all these things, your poverty is not a hindrance either, because the Master asks nothing from you. The poorer the wretch, the more he's welcome to Christ. My Master is not a covetous priest who demands pay for what he does. He freely forgives us. He wants none of your merits, nothing at all from you. Come to him as you are, because he's willing to receive you just as you are. But here's my sorrow and complaint that the blessed Lord Jesus, though present to heal, received no attention from most of the men. They looked another way, and had no eyes for him. Yet Jesus was not angry. I don't find anywhere that he scolded a single one of those who lay in the porches of Bethesda, or that he even thought harshly of them. But I'm sure he pitied them, and said in his heart, 
poor souls, they don't even know when mercy is so near. I am only the Lord's poor servant, but I pity from my inmost heart those of you who live without Christ. I should weep for you who are trying other ways of salvation, because they will all end in disappointment, and if continued in, will prove to be your eternal destruction. Observe very carefully what the Savior did. He looked around the whole multitude and made an election. He had a right to make whatever choice he pleased, and he exercised that sovereign prerogative. The Lord is not bound to give His mercy to every single one or to any specific one. He has freely proclaimed it to you all, but as you reject it, He now has a double right to bless His chosen ones by making them willing in the day of His power. The Savior selected that man out of the great multitude. We don't know why, but certainly his reason was founded in grace. If we ventured to give a reason for his choice, he may have selected him because his was the worst case, and he had waited the longest of all. Everyone spoke of this man's case. They said, This man has been there for thirty-eight years. Our Lord acted according to his own eternal purpose and did as he pleased with his own. He fixed the eye of his electing love on that one man, and, going up to him, he gazed upon him. He knew all his history. He knew that he had been a long time in that condition, and he pitied him. He thought of all the dreary months and years of painful disappointment which the man had suffered, and tears were in the master's eyes. He looked and looked again at that man, and he yearned to heal him. Now, I don't know whom Christ intends to save today by His powerful grace. I am bound to present a general appeal, which is all I can do. I should not be surprised if He calls some of you who have been waiting long. I will bless His name if He does. I should not be shocked if Jesus looks on some of you who never looked on Him, until His look makes you look, and His pity makes you have pity on yourselves, and His irresistible grace makes you come to Him so that you may be saved. Jesus performed an act of sovereign, distinguishing grace. I pray you don't kick against this doctrine. If you do, I can't help it, because it's true. I have proclaimed the gospel to every one of you as freely as man can do it. Surely you who reject it should not quarrel with God for bestowing on others that which you don't care to receive. If you desire His mercy, He will not deny it to you. If you seek Him, He will be found by you. But if you refuse to seek mercy, don't criticize the Lord if He bestows it upon others. Once Jesus singled out this man, He said to him, Dost thou desire to be made whole? I have already hinted that Christ did not ask this because He wanted information. He wished to arouse the man's attention. It was the Sabbath, and the man was not thinking about being cured. To the Jew, it seemed a very unlikely thing that cures would take place on a Sabbath day. So Jesus brought his full attention back to the matter at hand, because the work of grace is a work upon a conscious mind, not upon senseless matter. Some pretend to regenerate unreasoning children by sprinkling their faces with water, but Jesus never attempted such a thing. Jesus saves men who have the use of their senses, and his salvation is a work upon motivated intellect and awakened affections. Jesus brought back the man's wandering mind with the question, Dost thou desire to be made whole? Indeed, the man might have said, I desire it above all things. I long for it. I pant for it. 
Now, I will ask you the same question. Dost thou desire to be made whole? Do you desire to be saved? Do you know what being saved is? Oh, you say, it's escaping from hell. No, 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 no. That's the result of being saved. But being saved is a different thing. Do you want to be saved from the power of sin? Do you desire to be saved from being covetous, worldly-minded, bad-tempered, unfair, ungodly, controlling, drunken, or profane? Are you willing to give up the sin that is dearest to you? No, says one, I can't honestly say I desire all that. Then you are not the man I am talking to. I am talking to the one who says, Yes, I long to be rid of sin, root and branch. I desire by God's grace this very day to become a Christian and to be saved from sin. Well, since you are already in a state of thoughtfulness, let's go a step further and observe what the Saviour did. He gave the command, saying, Rise, take up thy bed, and walk. The power by which the man arose was not in himself, but in Jesus. It was not the mere sound of the word which made him rise, but it was the divine power which went with it. I do believe that Jesus still speaks through his ministers. I trust that he speaks through me at this moment, when in his name I say to you who have been waiting at the pool, Wait no longer, but believe in Jesus Christ this very moment. Trust him now. I know that my words won't make you do it, but if the Holy Spirit works through the words, you will believe. Trust Christ now, poor sinner. Believe that he is able to save you. Believe it now. Rely upon him to save you this moment. Rest in him now. If you are enabled to believe, the power will come from him, not from you. Your salvation will be accomplished not by the sound of the word, but by the secret power of the Holy Spirit which goes with that word. Although nothing is said about faith in the text, this man must have had faith. Suppose you had been unable to move your hands or feet for thirty-eight years, and someone said at your bedside, Rise. You wouldn't even think of trying to rise, because you would know it to be impossible. You would have to have faith in the person who spoke the word, or you would not make the attempt. I think I can picture the poor man. There he is, a heap, a writhing bundle of tortured nerves and powerless muscles, yet Jesus says, Rise, and up he rises in a moment. Take up thy bed, says the master, and the bed is carried. Here we see the man's faith. The man was a Jew, and he knew that, according to the Pharisees, it would be a very wicked thing for him to roll up his mattress and carry it on the Sabbath. But because Jesus told him to, he asked no questions. He bundled up his bed and walked. He did what he was told to do because he believed in him who spoke. Do you have this type of faith in Jesus, poor sinner? Do you believe that Christ can save you? If you do, then I say to you in his name, trust him now. If you trust Jesus, you will be saved, saved on the spot and saved forever. The cure which Christ worked was perfect. The man could carry his bed. The restoration was proven by a demonstration, and the cure was evident to all. Also, the cure was immediate. He wasn't told to take a lump of figs, put it on the saw, and wait. He wasn't carried home by his friends, laid up for a month or two, and gradually nursed back to health. No, he was cured then and there. 
Half of our professing Christians think that regeneration cannot take place in a moment, so they instruct poor sinners, go and lie at Bethesda's pool, wait comfortably in your religious rituals, humble yourself, seek for deeper repentance. Do away with such teaching. The cross, the cross, the cross, there hangs a sinner's hope. You must not rely on what you can do, nor on what angels can do, nor on visions and dreams, nor on feelings and strange emotions, or horrible hallucinations. You must rest in the blood of my Master and my God, slain for sinners. There is life when you look to the Crucified One, and there is life nowhere else. I come to the same point once again. The Lord says, Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. Application I hope, believers, your hearts are going up in prayer. What a scene lies before us! If someone had told us that a mass of people would gather to listen to the gospel, hundreds would have doubted it. We have had no gorgeous ceremony to attract the multitudes. There's not even the sound of the organ. I declined its peeling notes so we wouldn't seem to depend on it in the slightest degree for anything from a thread even to a shoe buckle. I didn't want anything to hinder the preaching of the gospel. The preaching of the cross is enough to draw the people and enough to save the people. If we include anything else, we lose our power and cut away the locks which make us strong. The application of the text is just this. Why shouldn't we, on this very spot, have instantaneous cures of sick souls? Why shouldn't there be scores, hundreds, thousands who hear the gracious words, Rise, take up thy bed, and walk? I believe it's possible, and I hope it will be done. Let me talk with you who doubt this matter. You still think that you must wait. You've waited long enough, and you're becoming weary, but still you stick to the old plan. Hopeless as it is, you still grab at it as drowning men do at straw. I want to show you that this is all wrong. Regeneration is an instantaneous work, and justification is an instantaneous gift. Man fell in a moment, and when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was desirable to the eyes, and a tree of covetousness to understand, she took of its fruit, and ate, and gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Genesis 3 6. When Eve plucked the fruit, and Adam ate it. It did not require six months to bring them into a state of condemnation. It did not require several years of continued sin to cast them out of paradise. Their eyes were opened by the forbidden fruit. They saw that they were naked and hid themselves from God. Surely Christ will not be longer about His work than the devil was about His. Is it reasonable to think that the devil destroyed us in a moment, and Jesus is unable to save us in a moment? Glory be to God, He has far more power to deliver than any which Satan uses for man's destruction. Look at the biblical illustrations of salvation. I will only mention three. Noah built an ark, and that was a type of salvation. Christ has built the ark for us, and we have nothing to do with building it. But when was Noah saved? Does anyone say he was saved after he had been in the ark a month, had put everything in order inside the ark, and then looked out on the deluge and felt his danger? No. Noah was saved the moment he entered the ark, and the Lord shut him in. When he had been in the ark a second, he was as secure as when he had been there a month. 
Take the cue of the Passover. When were the Jews safe from the destroying angel who went through the land of Egypt? Were they safe after the blood which was sprinkled on the door had been looked at and considered for a week or two? No. The moment the blood was sprinkled, the house was secured, and the moment a sinner believes and trusts in the crucified Son of God, he is pardoned at once. He receives salvation in full through Christ's blood. One more instance. The brazen serpent. When the brazen serpent was lifted up, what were the wounded supposed to do? Were they told to wait until the brazen serpent was pushed into their faces, or until the venom of the serpent showed certain symptoms in their flesh? No, they were commanded to look, and they did look. Were they healed in six months? No, they were healed as soon as their eyes met the serpent of brass, and the cure was complete. And as soon as your eye meets Christ, poor trembler, you are saved. Even though you were drunk and up to your neck in sin yesterday, if you look to my once slain but now exalted Master today, you will find eternal life. Again, let's consider some biblical instances. Did the dying thief wait at the pool of religious rituals? You know how soon his believing prayer was heard. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Luke twenty three forty three. Did the three thousand at Pentecost wait for some great thing? No, they believed and were baptized. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart, and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, each one of you, into the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Acts 2.37-38. Look at the jailer of Philippi. It was the dead of night, the prison was shaken, and the jailer was alarmed. After he realized everyone was accounted for, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Did Paul say, Well, you must use the means and look for a blessing upon the ordinances? No, he said, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved, and thy house. And that very night he baptized him. And the keeper of the prison, awaking out of his sleep, and seeing the prison doors open, he drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had fled. But Paul cried with a loud voice, saying, Do thyself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called for a light, and came inside, and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas, and brought them out, and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved, and thy house. Acts 16, 27-31 Paul did not take as much time as some think is so necessary. He believed, as I do, that there is life in a look at Jesus. He asked men to look, and by looking they lived. You might see this even more clearly if I remind you that the work of salvation is all done. There's nothing for a sinner to do in order to be saved. It's all done for him. You want washing. The bath does not need filling. There is a fountain filled with blood. You want clothing. You don't have to make the garment because the robe is ready. The garment of Christ's righteousness is woven from the top to the bottom, and all you have to do is put it on. If some work remained for you to do, it might be a longer process, 
but all the doing is accomplished by Christ. Salvation is not of works, but of grace. To accept what Christ presents to you does not require a work of time. I'll put it another way. Salvation itself cannot take place over a long time, even where it seems to be most gradual. When we look at it closely, it turns out to be the work of a moment. We have a dead man. Now, if that man is raised from the dead, there must be an instant in which he was dead and another instant in which he was alive. The actual enlivening must be the work of a moment. At first, the life may be very feeble, but there must be a time when it begins. There must be a line between life and death. We can't always see it ourselves, but God sees it. A man cannot be somewhere between dead and alive. He's either alive or dead. In the same way, you are either dead in sin or alive unto God, and the process cannot involve a long period of time. Finally, it doesn't take a century or a year for God to say, I forgive you. The judge pronounces the sentence, and the criminal is acquitted. If God says to you this morning, I absolve you, then you are absolved, and you may go in peace. I must share my own case. I never found mercy by waiting. I never obtained a gleam of hope by depending on religious rituals. I found salvation by believing. I heard a simple minister of the gospel say, Look and live. Look to Jesus. He bleeds in the garden and he dies on the tree. Trust him. Trust in what he suffered instead of you, and if you trust him, you will be saved. The Lord knows I had heard that gospel many times before, but I had not obeyed it. That time it came with power to my soul, and I did look. The moment I looked to Christ, I lost my burden. But, someone might say, how do you know? Did you ever carry a burden yourself? Oh, yes, they say. Did you know when it was off? How did you know? Oh, they say, I felt so different. I knew when my burden was on, and consequently I knew when it was off. It was the same in my case. I only wish some of you felt the burden of sin as I felt it when I was waiting at the pool of Bethesda. I am amazed that my waiting didn't land me in hell. But when I heard the word look, I looked, and my burden was gone. I wondered where it went, but I haven't seen it since, and I'll never see it again. It went into the Master's tomb, and it lies forever buried there. God has said it. I have undone as a cloud thy rebellions, and thy sins as a mist. Isaiah 44, 22. You who are needy, come to my Master. Those of you who have been disappointed with rituals and ceremonies, feelings and impressions, and all the hopes of the flesh, come at my Master's command and look up to Him. He's not here in the flesh because He has risen. He has risen to plead for sinners, and, therefore, He is able also to save to the uttermost those that come unto God by Him, seeing He ever lives to make intercession for them. Hebrews 7.25 If there were some way I could know how to preach the gospel so that you would feel it, I would go to any school to learn. The Lord knows I would willingly consent to lose my eyes to get greater power in my ministry, and lose my arms, legs, and all my members. I would be willing to die 
if I could only be honored by the Holy Spirit to win your souls to God. I beg you, brothers and sisters, you who have power in prayer, pray for the Lord to bring sinners to Christ. Let me say in all seriousness to you who have heard the words today, I have told you the plan of salvation plainly. If you don't accept it, I am clear of your blood. I shake my skirts of the blood of your souls. If you don't come to my Lord and Master, I must bear swift witness against you at the day of judgment. I have told you the way. I can't tell it to you more simply. I beg you to follow it. Look to Jesus. But if you refuse it, when you rise from the dead and stand before the great white throne, do me the justice to acknowledge that I begged you and attempted to persuade you to escape. I did my best to urge you to flee from the wrath to come. I pray for the Lord to save each one of you, and His shall be the praise forever. Amen.